Please remain standing as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is part 13 in the series. The first letter to Timothy. Today's message is entitled, Caring for the Elders. I'll start reading at verse 17. This is the Word of God. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this, your word, and we praise you for teaching us your truth. So give us grace and understanding as we study this now, Father. Thank you, O Holy Spirit, for being present as our teacher. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Are you familiar with the name Bob Pierce? Bob Pierce. In 1950, Bob Pierce started what is called World Vision. You might know World Vision as an organization that today is meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of children worldwide. 1967, his board fired him. In 1970, he started an organization called Samaritan's Purse, following after the tradition of the Good Samaritan in Luke. And today, Franklin Graham is the director of Samaritan's Purse. But it began in the heart of Bob Pierce, because Bob wanted to see the needs of people met and taken care of where there was tragedy, where there was natural disasters. And we know very well the ministry of Samaritan's Purse that we support is a wonderful ministry. And many of you support World Vision Children, and that's also a wonderful ministry. The sad thing is Bob Pierce never got to see really either of those ministries through, because he burned himself out early in life. His daughter, Marilee Pierce Dunker, has described in her book how he got into the difficulties that led to his death. You know, Bob Pierce had a wonderful heart for God. And if you've never heard this quote, and maybe you've heard this quote and didn't know it was attributed to him, but this is a quote, he wrote this in the flyleaf of his Bible. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. That was Bob Pierce. But Bob's daughter said he believed that it was his his obligation before God to give 100% of himself in ministry to others 100% of the time. So he was on the road nine or ten months out of the year. His daughter felt that if he did his part, 
then God was under obligation to take care of his family at home while he was out solving the problems of the world. And he and his wife had three daughters. The problem with this sad story is that on the surface, his thinking would appear to be almost biblical. I think my second or my third sermon that I preached as your pastor 17 years ago was a message entitled, Pastors Are People Too. Some of you will remember that. In that message, I shared that I despise Mondays. Mondays are not good days. I called them in that sermon, my blue Mondays. And I will never forget the day that my dear friend Harry Hurt, the late Harry Hurt, stood at my office door with a cake in his hand. A cake that he had baked for me. And he stood there. I said, well, Harry, how are you? He said, I'm good. This is for your Blue Monday. And I don't hate Mondays because for some reason I hate starting a new week. But I hate coming down from the mountain. Archibald Hart, senior professor of psychology and dean emeritus at Fuller Theological Seminary, explains this way about Blue Mondays. He said, every minister I know feels lousy on Monday. You see, the day of heavy adrenaline draw is typically the day of worship. When you have to perform, so to speak, and be in the pulpit and so on. When the adrenaline then comes down, you go into a discomforting depression. Many ministers spiritualize this depression, he writes. But mostly, it's just bad adrenaline management. Much of what we do in ministry does require a lot of adrenaline. Take preaching, for instance. If you're going to keep people awake and not put them to sleep, you have to put a lot of energy into it. It's the overuse of that system of energy, though, that leads you suddenly to crash on a Monday morning and puts your body into what is known as a post-adrenaline depression. What are the symptoms of that adrenaline letdown? You get irritable. You don't have a lot of patience. You want to be quiet. You don't want to talk. You don't want to see anybody. (laughs) Which is why a lot of pastors take Mondays off. I've never been able to succeed with Mondays as a day off. Too much going on in the brain and the heart. So, again, this is not just for pastors, but for all spiritual leaders, elders, deacons, Women in ministry leaders, even secular leaders of all varieties, face really two important issues. And the first is stress. Stress. Stress is a biological phenomenon. It takes place when what I just read to you takes place. When you've used up too much adrenaline. Stress puts your body in a state of emergency. For those of you who are workaholics... And I'm one of those. Would you listen to this? Because I'm always preaching this to myself. To take a day off to enjoy some rest and recreation is not wrong. In fact, I've told people before, if I didn't have a chance to hit a golf ball every once in a while, I think I'd go crazy. Most people don't understand that. They're not a waste of time. Rest and recreation are ways that the body can renew itself. Jesus habitually took time off. Mark 6 says this, Crowds of people were coming and going so that they did not even have time to eat. Now that's serious. You're going so busy you don't even have time to eat. 
Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves and we will go to a lonely place to get some rest. Rick Warren on this whole thing of relaxation and balance has a saying. It goes like this. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually. That means every day you take a break. Somewhere in that day. Every week you take off a day. That's your Sabbath. And then every year you go on a vacation. And Warren says, that's the minimum. Stress. Secondly, burnout. While stress is a biological phenomenon, burnout is more of an emotional response. And in burnout, things are just not going right. The resources aren't there. People aren't affirming you so that eventually you feel demoralized. Burnout occurs when you don't have adequate support. You don't have someone to talk to and share your burdens with. Ultimately, both of these, stress and burnout, lead to depression. And at that point, you just don't care anymore. And I guess that's what happened with Bob Pierce. Bob eventually left his family. It it makes no sense, someone who loved God so much, to separate himself from his family. I mean, when he came home, he never unpacked his suitcase, according to his daughter. He just lived out of his suitcase at home for the next trip that was coming. You know, I think the Apostle Paul wrote what he did in our text because he was concerned about young Timothy. Since this letter would be read in front of the whole congregation at Ephesus, Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy was taken care of. And so you have to love that about Paul. So there's three lessons let's look at this morning. And the first is remuneration. Big word, R-E-M-U-N-E-R-I-A-T-I-O-N. Remuneration. Paul begins the first part of our text speaking about those elders who, quote unquote, direct the affairs of the church well. That's verse 17. He said that those who do such a great job are worthy of double honor. And then he adds, quote, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So, obviously, there were those who were elders who did a lot of administrative oversight for the local church. And there there were those then whose primary work was preaching and teaching. And we know whose work that is. That's usually the pastor, right? In this case, it was Timothy that prepared the messages to teach and to preach God's people. Paul actually uses a term for work when he talks about this work of preaching and teaching. And in the original language, it meant toil, hard work. I kind of laugh when people say to me, Tuesday's your day off, right? And I know what they're saying is that's the day you're kind of closed up. There's no one around. And But it's a, a comical word to me. From personal experience, I can tell you that preparing sermons on a weekly basis is hard work. Why? Because for some reason, Sundays come around so weekly. So Paul's point was, show respect to your pastor. How do you do that? Well, in the way that you speak to him or in the way you speak about him. And again, it's not just the pastor. It's all the leaders that, believe, that Paul said really need to be shown respect. He said this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you want to turn back just about three pages, you can get to that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. 
He says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them, <clears throat> hold them in the highest regard in love, <clears throat> excuse me, because of their work. And then he says, live in peace with each other. So, very timely word for us, I think, as a church. So what about the pastor's pay? That's what remuneration is about. Is the pastor getting paid? Well, look in the text again at verse 18. There's a couple of quotes in that verse. He says, Scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. And then he says another quote, the worker deserves his wages. That's verse 18. And the first passage comes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, which means these animals should be allowed to eat some of the grain that they are trampling under their feet. That's, that's really all it means. The other passage came from the lips of Jesus in Luke 10, verse 7. Now, how did Paul know these words from Luke? Well, you have to remember that Paul and Luke were friends. They were traveling companions in ministry. And so Paul may have read them in one of the first pages of Luke's gospel that was to be produced. Possibly copies had already been distributed. It could be this saying was already well known by the believers through what is called oral tradition passed down verbally in the early church. So whatever the case, Paul says that those who work hard in the ministry should be adequately compensated by the church. Now, there are churches that do this well, and there are churches that don't do this well. I've heard of friends who struggle because the church where they serve does not seem to show concern for this most important point. And I'll tell you honestly, as a pastor, if a man has to struggle financially, his mind is not on what it needs to be on. We are extremely blessed at First Presbyterian Church. That the session, the elders who oversee this important ministry, they pay very careful attention to the pastors and to the staff. And so we're blessed. But I've talked to too many that have not been blessed in that way, not been cared for. And it has always been very important to this church to take care of its staff. And I'm thankful for that. So the first lesson is remuneration. The second lesson is accusation. So the elders... Who deserve double honor are those who do their work well, which suggests that there are others who do not do their work well. Timothy had to deal with the problems associated with those elders who did not serve well. However, he was not to entertain an accusation against an elder unless it was brought by at least two or possibly three witnesses, according to verse 19. Sometimes people complain about their pastors. Believe it or not, sometimes people complain about the elders of the church. Timothy was not to listen to those who wanted to complain for complaint's sake. He needed to remember that the person in the front line of the battle is going to draw the fire of the enemy. So when you hear an accusation about an elder, there are five questions that you should ask. These are not from me, but this is from a man named Bill Gothard. Bill Gothard, another man who kind of burned himself out. And uh, made some improper choices in his life. But his basic, basic youth conflicts was a tremendous resource for ministry. But he has these five questions that I think are, are worthy of being asked. Why are you telling me this? 
That's the first thing you should ask. Why are you telling me this? Widening the circle of gossip only compounds the problem. If the person says, well, well, I just thought you needed to know this so you could pray. Well, a lot of times that is true. The pastor does need to know how to pray. But I would caution that person not to say anything more to anyone else before he checks out the facts and takes the biblical steps to deal with it. Jesus laid out the best approach to church discipline. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, let's see what Jesus had to say about confronting someone and about this whole issue of sin. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. There's an old saying. If a brother comes to see you, he has a problem. If two brothers come to see you, you have a problem. Paul wanted Timothy to be aware that he should not listen to gossip about leaders or even to a serious accusation if it is made by only one person. Every charge must be supported by several responsible people before it's even listened to. One of my sources is John Stott, the late John Stott, and he writes, Adherence to this biblical principle would have silenced many a malicious talebearer and saved many pastors from unjust criticism and unnecessary suffering. So one of the first questions you should ask is, well, why are you telling me this? Second question is, where, where did you get your information? Where did you get your information? Refusal to identify the source is usually a sure sign of gossip. Third question, have you gone directly to those involved? If the person has not gone to those involved, then he or she could be more interested in just spreading gossip than in helping to restore the one or ones who have sinned. Fourth question, have you personally checked out all the facts? It's easy for facts to get distorted as they travel from one person to the next. And then number five, May I quote you if I check this out? May I quote you? And I would be lying if I didn't say to you that church discipline, when we're discussing this now, is not an easy thing to practice. But I would also be lying if I said to you that we at First Presbyterian do not practice church discipline. Do we do it perfectly? No, we do not. Do we do it privately? All the time. All the time. Which leads me to say that what Paul mentions in verse 20 is a last resort. Look in verse 20. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I really do believe that's to be a last resort. And I will just say that I've been the, the witness to three public rebukes of a pastor in our presbytery in the last 10 years. And that's the most painful thing in the world. On one of the three occasions, the pastor was actually there. 
The other two times the pastor was not there because he was not willing to repent. And so he didn't show up. But I'll tell you what, my, my hat was off to the man who did show up. And to stand there in front of the whole body and receive a rebuke in love. And it was done lovingly. But, but those public rebukes that I have witnessed are some of the saddest and yet the most profound experiences I have ever been a part of. And it accomplishes exactly what Jesus said it should accomplish. Great fear falls on the whole body. So the whole idea of public, tell it to the church, can really depend on your church government. And and that's where Jesus actually went in the next part. In verse 17 of Matthew 18, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. So uh, that can depend on your form of government because tell it to the church could mean tell it to the session. Tell it to the elders. So again, I truly believe that Presbyterian government is biblical. I believe the pastor is to lead the church under the leadership of the session. And as moderator, I lead the session. I'm also a member of the session. I'm not a member of the congregation. So it is the session that leads this church. And when there is discipline to be done, churches need to be on a need-to-know basis. Unless the church really needs to know. So remuneration... Accusation, And then the third lesson is ordination. Honestly, I really think that Timothy must have been under a lot of stress. I really do. Why do I say that? Because of what Paul said in verse 23. Look at verse 23. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. I mean, that just says to me that Timothy was probably a lot like a lot of pastors. He was wired. He was high strung and, uh, you know, uh, wine being fermented grape juice was much purer than the filthy water I'm sure they had to drink. I can only imagine that the pastorate was giving Timothy a bad case of indigestion. And he needed to take some wine for medicinal purposes. So how do we apply this? Why don't we take it from someone who lived a little bit closer to Timothy's time, Ambrose of Milan. He lived in the 4th century, and here's how he interpreted verse 23. Quote, we must drink then not for the sake of pleasure, but because of infirmity, and therefore sparingly as a remedy, not in excess as a gratification. In other words, if you drink to get the buzz, then your motivation is irresponsible. And it's questionable. The Bible is always careful about the use of alcohol. Of course, Christians are free to drink in moderation. Because like everything else in creation, it is to be, quote, received with thanksgiving. In fact, Paul said that the only people who forbid the use of wine are false teachers. And that was 1 Timothy 4, verse 3. But if you are tempted to flaunt your Christian liberty... You should note Paul's words when he said a little wine, a little wine. He's talking about moderation. And one of my sources, Philip Graham Ryken, has a great quote. He says, Christians are not commanded to be teetotalers, but they are not allowed to become drunkards either. And then verse 22 says this. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. 
Keep yourself pure. So the laying on of hands meant that he was talking about ordination. Ordination of officers in which elders or deacons are involved in a service in which they lay their hands on elders and deacons to commission them at a public service. So the bottom line is he was telling Timothy, don't be in a hurry to rush someone into service in such an important role. And Paul said in chapter 3 that an elder should not be a recent convert. Those appointed to this office should have plenty of time to grow in their faith, to become a mature Christian. And so if he was a part of selecting someone, if Timothy was a part of selecting someone and it backfired, Paul warns Timothy here that he would take a share of the blame. That is why Timothy was to do everything he could to keep himself pure. Paul closes out the text by speaking about those who might pursue the office of elder. He says, basically, be discerning. Be discerning about your leaders. Some sins are obvious, and you'll be able to detect that. Others, he says, are not so obvious. And so, in other words, the proof's in the pudding. If you're a Christ follower, if you've embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, eventually, that will be made clear by your lifestyle. And one day, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. According to 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things that are done while in the body, whether good or bad. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is Hebrews 13, verse 7. Hebrews 13, 7. It's in your outline, beneath your outline. Let's read it out loud together. Remember your leaders... Who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the leaders that have been an example to me. And thank you for those that are worshiping here today who can think of leaders, spiritual leaders, that lived such a godly example before them that it impacted their life for Christ and changed their life. And so, Lord, we are so grateful for the privilege that we've had to be a part of the body of Christ. And the beauty of the body of Christ is so evident, Lord. And we thank you for your great love for us and the privilege that we have to, to walk in your grace and mercy each and every day. And, Lord, I just pray that you will bless your church, bless First Presbyterian, keep our eyes upon you that we might honor you and glorify you in our lives, personally and corporately, as we live out the faith each and every day. Thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for a day set aside to come together as your people. And so, Lord, we pray your blessings upon this day, not only in our worship, but in the meeting that follows. We commit ourselves as a body of believers into your care through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.